you have a Bible, take it and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. So in about three weeks since we last considered the story of Abraham. And I wonder if it may have been about that period of time between chapters 17 and 18. I'm not sure, but it might be a good stab. Uh, you'll remember back in chapter 17 that God appeared to Abraham. He reaffirmed this covenant that he had made with him, this promise that he was going to bless him, that he was going to give him a land, that he was going to make him a blessing. He would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And then, most poignantly, that he was going to make a great nation out of him, that he was going to give him a son. And God makes it very clear that that son is going to come through Sarah. And you remember at that point that Abraham laughs. He laughs and he says, God, what... Oh, that, that Ishmael would live before you, that you would accept Ishmael as the son of promise. But God says, no, you're going to have a son through Sarah, a son named Isaac, named Laughter. And then God gives him a timetable and says, it's going to happen this time next year. The story then continues in chapter 18. And let's just pick it up right there. Genesis chapter 18, and let's read verses 1 through 15. That's where we'll be this morning. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. The word of the Lord says, And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. What a great story from Genesis 18. We're told that the Lord appears to Abraham again. And then we're told how. It was in the middle of the day. It was in the heat of the day, and Abraham was sitting by his tent door. It was the time of day that people went to the shade, especially when you lived in an area like that. So Abraham is in his tent door in the shade. 
and everyone else is probably in the shade, in the shade too, including the animals and, and his servants there are resting. It's kind of siesta time. Uh, Abraham is still in the region of, of Hebron. He's near the land that belongs to Mamre by these, these oak trees that everyone seems to know so well. We might imagine Abraham sitting at his tent door on the ground, staring um, into space, thinking about the only thing that he probably could think about those days, thinking about God's promise to him that his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, was going to have a, bo- a baby boy in about a year, that this child was going to be named Isaac, laughter, and that he would soon be coming. And I imagine Abraham's mind kind of like a teeter-totter. One minute he is believing what God says, and the next moment he is saying, that's impossible. One minute he is is smiling with joy at the thought of having a son through Sarah, and the next moment he is shaking his head in disbelief, saying that it is impossible. But suddenly his his concentration is broken. He lifts his eyes to the horizon. All his thoughts vanish quickly because all of a sudden he sees three men standing in front of him at some distance. They seem to have appeared out of nowhere, and it could be that they actually did appear out of nowhere. It's hard to tell. Were they coming his way? Were they just passing through? It's not really clear in the text, but but Abraham gets up, and he runs as fast as his 100-year-old legs can carry him, and he runs out to them and immediately bows down to the ground, puts his face in the dust. Even though we don't know, it it would seem that, that Abraham doesn't know that this is actually the Lord, that this is God himself appearing to him, and that he has two angels that are with him. It, it seems that Abraham doesn't know yet who he is encountering, but he's going to find out pretty soon. They must have presented themselves as some people of, of status that, that were worthy of, of being revered, because Abraham, when he reaches them, what does he do? He falls down on the ground, and he calls the one who appears to be the leader, he calls him Lord. You'll notice the difference in just kind of the, the text, if you had it um, in verse 3, it says, and he said, Oh, Lord. Now, if this was the name for God, that would be in in all caps. But it's just a a term of respect. He says, Oh, Lord. And then he pleads with them not to pass. He says, If I have found favor in your eyes, if if you think good of me, if, if you care for me in any way, then you will not pass me by. Abraham wants to bless them. He wants to wash their feet. He wants to give them food and water. He wants to allow them some time to rest and refresh themselves before continuing on their journey. Remember, it's the heat of the day. It's a time to rest under the shade, and Abraham is offering the shade of his trees. But he's, he's asking them that they would be willing to come to his house. Now, I've never invited someone of, of high rank or royalty to come to my house, but I imagine that if I called up, say, the Queen of England, and I invited her to join me at my house for some hot dogs and, and burgers on the grill, that, that she would probably not come, that I would not find favor in her eyes. She would not come to my house. But when Abraham goes to these, these people who are of high rank, and he says, will you come to my house, they accept the invitation. And once they accept the invitation, invitation, then he realizes that he has to make a meal worthy of the company that's coming to his house. He says, I'm going to offer you a morsel of bread, but he does much more than that. Abraham takes this risk, and they decide to come, and as fast as he ran out to them and bowed down, he runs just as fast back to his his tent, walks in the door, and says, Quick, Sarah, I need six gallons of flour. Knead it 
and make some cakes. That's a lot of flour. Uh, that's what it says. That's that's what the sayers are. It's, can you imagine that? What if I if I ran home and I said to Andrea, Andrea, quick, I need you to make 150 biscuits right now. If I said that, she would say what, and she would probably assume that the youth were coming over um, to make that many biscuits. Uh, <laughs> but who knows what what Sarah thought? We can't really tell, but I don't think she really had time to ask Abraham why, because before she can ask, Abraham is back out the door of his tent. He's running to the herds. He grabs a choice calf. He brings it to a young man, and he says, prepare this calf quickly. You notice that word over and over again. Abraham is running. Abraham is doing everything as quick as he can. Of course, these cakes, (coughs) excuse me, the cakes and the calf, they're not, they're not microwave meals. This isn't frozen pizza. It's going to take some time to make. I mean, this is fresh meat, right? They take the calf from the herd, and they are going to kill it and eat it that evening. Um, and so he comes, and this is not just a- any kind of food. This is a meal that's that's fit for a king. He's making these this this bread from scratch. He's, he's killing a, a choice calf and bringing it. When, when he shows up underneath the trees, he has, he has this... Um, the, the curds, which is kind of a, a yogurt of sorts. This is this is quite the spread, especially on short notice. And he serves these men. And as he serves them, it doesn't say that he sits by them, but rather he stands by them underneath the tree while they ate. He's standing as, as a servant, refilling their glasses, asking if they need anything else. He is serving these three men. So what is the point of all of this? Some see this as a really great lesson in hospitality, that we are to be quick to be kind to strangers, that we are to invite others into our home. And and surely this is something that we are supposed to do. We are to fellowship with one another. We're to be hospitable to one another. We're to be hospitable to strangers. And the author of Hebrews even says in Hebrews 13 too, he says that some people, by being hospitable to strangers, have actually entertained angels unaware. I imagine that he's probably thinking about this passage, that Abraham didn't know who he was entertaining, but he suddenly realized that he was entertaining the Lord himself and angels. So that's a lesson we can learn, but is that the focus of this passage? I don't think that's the focus of these verses in particular. Notice that that Abraham, he wants to serve these mysterious visitors. And when he comes to them, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, if, if you have any regard for me, if you will stoop to my level and allow me to serve you. And the fact is that then they allow him. And when, when they allow him to serve them, what are they saying? They're saying, Abraham, you have found favor in our eyes. They have counted Abraham as a friend. If I invite you over to my house and you come, then it means there's some sort of relationship. We are friends in some way because you have come to my house. But still, Abraham is frantic, running around. Uh, the speed that he's doing things with, the, the meal that he sets before them, shows the, the, who is superior in this relationship. It's the difference between me coming to your house and, say, like we said, the Queen of England coming to your house for dinner. There's, there's a relationship in both situations because we both agreed to come, but there's a sense of honor that's given to this person of, of higher rank. You're going to serve that person. You would serve the Queen of England much better than you would serve me if the queen of england was coming to my house the toys would not be strewn across the floor i would probably put the applesauce in a bowl rather than just setting the jar on the table we wouldn't use paper towels we'd probably use some cloth napkins there's a difference there and abraham is showing 
who he regards as superior in this. Not only that, but, but think about what's going on. Even though there's this difference in relationship, there still is a meal happening. They are eating together. Eating a meal with someone is seen throughout Scripture as a sign of a fellowship. We might call this a covenantal meal. It's a, it's a, a meal to celebrate this announcement that Sarah is going to have a son. We see this later on. We see it in places like Exodus 24, where the covenant is being given on the mountain. And there's this strange part where the 70 elders and a few other people, including Moses and others, they show up on the mountain as the covenant's being given, and they sit before the Lord, and they eat. They have a meal there in the presence of the Lord to establish this covenant. Jesus' ministry is marked by what? By him eating and drinking and fellowshipping and showing that he is kind to the sinners and the tax collectors and all those that, that he sees. Remember when he pursues Zacchaeus? He pursues Zacchaeus and he sees him in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house to have a meal with you. And then when he comes, he proclaims salvation in that house and he proclaims that Zacchaeus is his friend. Think about that picture in Revelation 3 where Jesus is knocking at the door. I stand at the door and knock. What happens if the door is opened? Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He eats with us. And then when Christ returns, what is the picture? The picture is of a marriage supper, that we all sit around this big table and eat together with Christ, fellowship with him, that we are his friends. Who do you invite to the marriage feast? Well, you invite your friends. That's who comes. And Jesus says, I will eat with you, and you'll be my friends. Of course, the fullest, the most wonderful example of a covenantal meal is the Lord's Supper. You think about Jesus eating that Passover meal. He sits down to eat this Passover meal, which was another covenantal meal, and he takes it and he transforms it, and he establishes communion. He establishes this, this meal, this meal that is to be a picture of fellowship, our fellowship with him, and the fact that our lives are bound up in his life and death and resurrection. So this meal that God has with Abraham, and we can think about the Lord's Supper and, and other meals, establishes and affirms God's relationship with Abraham. It says that, that Abraham is the friend of God, just as we are said to be God's friends, that we have found favor in his eyes. The rest of the chapter is going to show more about this unique relationship, but here I think the point is that God has regard for Abraham, that God cares about him, that he counts him as a friend. The distinction is clear. They are different rank, but they eat together. And we see that they are friends. And so too, Jesus calls us friends. He is the Lord, but we are truly his friends if we welcome him through repentance and faith. He sits down. He eats with us. So the point of these verses, I think, is that God affirms his relationship with Abraham and with us. God affirms his relationship with Abraham and with us. I think if we put it simply. So they have this, they sit down to have this meal, and as these visitors are sitting, Abraham is by the tree, and the Lord looks at Abraham, and he asks him a question that he already knows the answer to. He says, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? I think it's good to note that he knows Sarah's name. Um, he hasn't asked that question, but he knows who she is. I wonder if that triggered something in Abraham's mind and said, how does he know my wife's name? Um, 
this new name that had just been given to her. He knew where she was, but he asked the question to make it clear that he wants to take this conversation and the focus is going to be on Sarah. And while the customs of that day wouldn't allow Sarah to sit there, God is communicating something and he wants to communicate it to Sarah. He wants Sarah to hear. He knows that she is eavesdropping on the conversation and he wants her to. He wants her to hear what he's going to say. So Abraham says she's in the tent. The tent is behind the Lord. It says that very clearly that, that the Lord is sitting and the tent is behind him. And when God, when Abraham says she's in the tent, God says loud enough so that Sarah can hear. He says, I'm going to be back this time next year and Sarah is going to have a son. I imagine that Sarah almost choked at that word. She was probably glad that the stranger's back was to her so that he could not see her hiding her laughter um, and and holding back her laughter. She was listening at the door, and, and, and these words, they were, they were just foolishness to her. And the text tells us why. She says because she says she didn't see beyond her age, not to mention the fact that she, she is, she's old, and it says here that she has gone beyond the age of childbearing. She has had a change in her life. And there is, not only was she barren all her life, but now she is unable to have children. It's impossible, at least in her eyes. She says, after I'm worn out, <laughs> after I'm worn out and my Lord, speaking of Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, before we consider what Sarah's words reveal, I want you to think about what's going on because there's a subtle point. Remember, Sarah is in the tent, and it's behind the Lord. So the Lord cannot see her. And Sarah does not laugh out loud. She, she stifles her laughter. She, she holds it in. So the Lord, from a human perspective, if he's just a human, has no idea what's going on behind him. He could not have seen her, and he could not have heard her. But God shows his power. He shows his omniscience, his all-knowing character, because he says, why did Sarah laugh? And suddenly Sarah, who was laughing, everything gets very serious at that moment. Something was funny. It struck her as funny. And now she gets scared. This suppressed laughter turns to fear. And we've all been there, right? And we've all done this. Ashamed to admit it. But we talk about someone and we assume that they're not there. And suddenly we find out that they are. We're, we make a comment about our boss or her co-worker, or a family member thinking that they're not there, only to realize that they are standing right behind us. We've all done that. But as much as God's comment, it fills Sarah with fear. What it does is it reminds us that Abraham and Sarah were taught by Hagar in chapter 16, that the Lord sees, that the Lord hears, that God sees them, he hears them. This is a miraculous display of God's power, and it shows that that he knows all things, he knows everything about everything, and he knows everything about Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah, suddenly their eyes are open that this isn't just an important person, but this is God himself that has come to visit them. The subtle point is that God is affirming his supernatural knowledge of us. He's not just another person. He's the God who sees all things, the God who knows all things. I was thinking about this this morning. I was I went for a run this morning. Did you guys see the full moon last night? It was still out this morning, and and as I was running, I just kept seeing it. It just it was huge in the sky, lighting everything up. And as I was weaving different ways, 
it was it was everywhere. And there were moments where I said, where's it at? I can't find it anymore. And I would turn around, and there it is, just this huge eye in the sky looking at me. And I thought, this is how, how God is. And it doesn't matter where we're at, whether we see him or not, but that he sees us. He knows all things. He loves us. And so, again, we're setting up the main point of this passage. And, and the way that God does this, first is he affirms our, that he has a relationship with us that he loves us, that we are his friend. He does that for Abraham, and he does that for us. And then he affirms this supernatural knowledge of us. So what he is saying to Abraham and Sarah, and what he's saying to us is he's saying, I am your friend. I know everything. I know everything about everything, and I know everything about you. And then in the midst of this, he says, so why are you laughing, Sarah? Jesus says that we speak out of what fills our heart. It's out of the overflow of our heart that the mouth speaks. So in other words, what spills out of us reveals what's in our heart. So when Sarah laughs, she's revealing something that is in her heart. Sarah's mouth overflows with laughter, and God identifies and says, I know why you're laughing. We might, put word, we might be able to say that this is what God was kind of saying. He says, are, are you laughing, Sarah, because you are old? And because I said you would have a son. Are you laughing because you think it's too hard for me? Because of your limitations? Are you laughing because you doubt me? Because you see these physical limitations that surround you and you've decided that they're too much for me to handle? Sarah, you are laughing because you have a lack of faith. Sarah, you are laughing because you do not believe me. And then he asks a question of Abraham and Sarah, who had both laughed at the word of God. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a wonderful question. It's actually a very loving rebuke of Sarah, too. Because what he's saying is, you think that something is too hard for me. Let me ask you a question. Is anything too hard for me, Sarah? Of course, the answer is no. That word for hard there can also be translated wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for me? Sarah. Alan Ross, a commentator, says it basically means to be wonderful, extraordinary, surpassing. In this passage, the message is that for the Lord, nothing is too extraordinary. He delights in doing that which is impossible, marvelous, even surpassing. God is saying to Sarah and to us that whatever limitations we see before us are not limitations to God. Sarah's age, her physical inability to have children, these are not a limit to God any more than, what's the passage that we read? We read about Mary. If anyone was an unlikely candidate to have a child, it was Mary, because she didn't have a husband. She was a virgin. It was impossible. But what does God say? Nothing will be impossible for you. And if you look back at that, you know what's interesting? What does the angel say to her? It says, Mary, you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, in the same way that, that, that Abraham had found favor. So nothing is too hard, nothing is too wonderful, nothing is too incredible for God. God has never spoken the words, that's impossible, or that's too hard, or there are too many limitations. Remember the context of this word, that God has affirmed his relationship, his friendship with Abraham and Sarah, that he is for them, that he loves them. And they have found favor in his eyes. He, he knows all things about everything. He knows everything about them. And so, too, for us, God shows us in Christ that we are 
his friends. If we have repented and believed in him, he, we are his friends. And he knows all things. And this great God tells us that nothing, nothing is too wonderful for him. Now, what was the issue for Sarah? Having a child. God says, you're going to have a child even though you're 90 years old and you've passed the age of childbearing. This is going to happen. And Sarah says, that's impossible, God. It's too hard for you to do. And God says, is anything too hard for me to do? Is anything too wonderful for me? What about for us? What is it that we have come in today and said, God, that's just too hard for you to do? That is impossible. That's beyond what you can do. Let me give you some examples, okay? These are things that we might be saying in our head, and I won't get everything, so I want you just to pray and ask, God, what am I not believing that you can do that you can? What am I saying that is too hard for you? Here's some that maybe will prick your mind. We might say things like this. We'll say, I am never, I'm never going to get victory over this temptation in my life. I've dealt with this sin, this particular sin for my entire life, and I am too weak. I'm too stuck in this pattern. It's just what I'm going to do. I love this sin too much. And then we're reminded that God has said there is no temptation that has overtaken you. There's nothing that I've given you that, that's not just common. And there's always a way of escape. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We'll say things about those that we love that have not come to faith in Christ. We'll say, they, he's never going to repent. He's never going to believe in the gospel. He's just too sinful. When we think about Jesus, we say, she's just too rich. She's got too much money and she relies on herself. Or they've been a part of that other religion for, for so long, no, there's no way that they're going to turn to Christ. Or they're too old. They'll never change now. They're stuck in their ways. But then we read about someone like Saul, the murderer. And then we hear Jesus talk about the rich man. And he says, it's, it's easier for a rich man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Is Jesus saying it's impossible? He's saying, yeah, it's impossible apart from me. It's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. So when we think about those that we say, there's no way that they would ever come to Christ. We say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. We think about physical ailments. We say, she's never going to get over this sickness. He is going to deal with this for the rest of his life. He'll never walk again and then we watch jesus in the scriptures as he causes the lame to walk gives sight to the sight to the blind even raises the dead and we say is anything too hard for the lord no you think about serving in the church and you say you know what i'd love to do this but i could never lead a bible study not only that i could i could never sit down across from someone and help them grow in their faith disciple them i'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too scared, I'm too weak in my faith, I'm, I'm, I'm too stupid, I don't understand God's word like I should. And then we read about Moses who stuttered, and we read about Gideon, and we read about timid Timothy who was leading a, a church in Ephesus, and we say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything? No, nothing is too wonderful for him. You might think about relationships in your life that are just strained. They're just not what you want it to be. It might be a husband-wife relationship. It might be a a parent-child relationship. It might be a friendship that's just messed up. And you say, you know what? This is never going to change. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about Jacob and Esau. I mean, how bad did Jacob wrong his brother? 
and yet God brought reconciliation to that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We think about our church. What's God going to do with Grace Fellowship Church? I have no idea. But there's never a time that we should say, well, God would never do that. That's too hard for him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about our community. We look around and we see there's there's tough areas around here. There's people that we say, well, they'll never come to our church or they'll never receive the ministry that we want to give or they'll never come to faith in Christ. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for him? Whatever the situation, whatever the apparent limitations that you see, whatever the reasons that you say that's too hard, know this, that God works in the realm of the impossible. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too wonderful for God. Now let me tell you about the way to misapply this passage. The way to twist it. The way to twist it is to say that nothing is impossible for the Lord and then to make this a verse where we try to strong arm God into doing what we want him to do. It's a verse that we use to try to force God to do what we want him to do. Listen to these words. This is a commentator named John Walton. I found this so helpful. He says, the rhetorical question of 1814, that question, is anything too hard for the Lord, does not present us with a promise to claim. It's not a promise to claim. It's not something that we grab a hold of and say, nothing's too hard for the Lord, and so he's going to do whatever I want him to do. But rather, it's an attribute to embrace, a faith to aspire to, and a hope to sustain us. Listen to this. When we face difficult circumstances, we cannot claim this verse as confidence that God will will change our circumstances. He is capable of changing any circumstances, but perhaps the hard thing that he will do is to help us to accept our circumstances and grow through them. We must be cautious, he says, that as we accept by faith that nothing is too hard for God, which we should do, we should accept that, but we must be cautious that we do not begin to dictate to him, to tell him which hard thing he must do. He tends to have things in mind that go far beyond what we are able to ask or even think. Some would say that because God can do anything, we may need to ask him to do anything. And if we have enough faith, then he will do anything that we ask him to do. And then if we desire something, we ask him for it, and it doesn't come to pass, then it's evidence that our faith is too weak. I think that's a lie. And I think it's a lie based on this passage. What do Abraham and Sarah do when God tells them he's going to do something amazing and wonderful? They laugh in his face. They laugh in God's face. They say, God, that's too hard for you. And what does God say? Well, you don't believe, so I'm not going to do it. No, he says, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do it no matter how weak your faith is. God does what he wants to do. There is an element where we need to have faith. And I believe that Abraham and Sarah come around to believing what God says. But I think it's kind of a, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief kind of faith. I think they say, God, we believe you can do it. We just don't think you are. And I think that God God says, that's fine. If that's how you want to believe, when I do it, then I'm going to get all the glory. I'm going to be honored. I'm going to be looked up to. I think they do believe. But it's not based on their faith. God, God is not calling us to, to name and to claim miracles, but he's calling us to walk through life believing something, believing this, that nothing is too hard for him, that nothing is too 
wonderful for the Lord. And there are times where we're going to do exactly what Sarah did. We are going to laugh in disbelief. We're going to think about something. Maybe a brother and sister in Christ comes to us and says, God could do this. And we say, yeah, right. There's no way that God is ever going to do that. We laugh at it. We don't believe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we never doubted God? And we want to be like that. Sarah wants to be like that. That's why when God kind of walks by her, she says, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did. You did laugh. I heard you. I saw you laugh. She thought she could hide it from him. I think the lesson is don't hide it. To come to God and to say, God, I, this is just too wonderful for me to imagine. I, just know, I know it's not too wonderful for you to do, but I just cannot wrap my mind around you doing it. Not my unbelief. That's how we come to God. God. God honors that. God doesn't expect us to always believe right away. God knows our frame. He knows that we are weak. But he wants us to walk through life with with this attitude that says God can do anything. That nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too wonderful for him. Again, commentator Alan Ross says, If the people of God who enjoy covenantal fellowship with him, if the people of God fully believed what he said he would do now or at any time in the history of the faith, their lives, their world would be very different. It's not necessarily that God is going to do everything that we think he can, but rather if we walk through life believing that he can, that's going to change us and it's going to change our world. I thought of this quote, I'm not sure it's fully applicable, but John Wesley famously said one time, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. He says, it doesn't matter if you would believe who God is and what he says he will do, then you can change the world. George Mueller was a man of faith. And he said, faith has nothing to do with feelings or with impressions, with improbabilities improbab- or with outward experiences. If we desire to couple such things with faith, then we are no longer resting on the word of God because faith needs nothing of the kind. Ready for this? Faith rests on the naked word of God. When we take him at his word, the heart is at peace. Are we willing to take God at his word? To believe that when he says he can do anything, we say, we can do anything. That nothing is too hard for the Lord. If we would walk that way, if we would live life that way, the people that we encounter, we would say, nothing is too hard. This person is not so lost that God cannot save them. This relationship isn't so broken that God cannot heal it. This person is not so sick that God cannot heal them. My faith is not so weak that God can't strengthen it. This temptation isn't so strong that I can't overcome it. This sin isn't so embedded in me that I can't break out of it. Maybe you come here today and you say, I'm so sinful that God can't save me. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is any heart too hard for the Lord? No. Think about the impossibility of the gospel. It's impossible to our minds. It's impossible to think about God becoming man. We can talk about it as much as we want. We'll never wrap our minds around it. It's impossible to think about Jesus Christ living an absolutely perfect life, never sinning. 
it's impossible to think about Jesus dying. The hymn says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." How does God, who is immortal, die? It's a mystery. Not only that, but that he would die and be our substitute. That he would die for the sins that we have committed. That he would say, I'm going to take your sin upon myself, and I'm going to take God's judgment for your sin on me, and I'm going to bear that penalty. That the wages of your sin is death, but I'm going to take death for you. What's impossible to our ears? But the other thing that's impossible is that the only thing that we need to do to receive it is belief. To just have faith. That if we would just believe that Jesus took the penalty for our sins, that he lived the life that we could not, then we will be saved. Here's a miracle. You want to talk about an amazing birth, even beyond Sarah having Isaac at 90 years old, or Mary having Jesus as a virgin. Think about this. When we come to Christ, we are born again. There's a spiritual birth that we don't even see that occurs within us, and we are made completely new. We, we die to sin and we're raised to new life in Christ and God's Spirit comes and dwells within us. That's all impossible, according to men. But with God, all things are possible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So our response to the Gospel is to believe. To believe that nothing, even the salvation of our sinful and rebellious souls, is impossible. And if that's possible, if God can save us, then nothing is too hard for the Lord. I love Romans 8.32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If Jesus gave his very life for us, then why would he withhold anything else from us? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I think that question should cause two things in us, and we'll close with this. One would be, we may need to repent. We may need to say, God, there are things that I just don't believe you can do, that I say they're just too hard for you. And we need to repent and say, God, I have doubted who you are. I did laugh. To admit to God, unlike Sarah said, I, I laughed when you told me you would do that. But then, after that repentance, to say, Lord, I believe that nothing is too hard for you. Help my unbelief. There may be a specific situation you need to apply it to, I don't know. But if there is, do that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for Him? No. Nothing is too hard for God. With God, all things are possible.